Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 208 of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you into our world of financial markets and financial planning. So, good morning, Matt. Good morning, Mark. How was your 4th of July holiday? I know I saw you a few times. It was great, dodging rain the entire weekend, it felt like. I know. I know. Yeah, it uh, rained rained out two golf days for me, but uh, but that's okay. I got to spend some time at the pool, saw your kiddos, so that was always fun. Oh, yeah, they were living their best life this weekend. I'm happy for them. Yeah, so happy, uh, happy late 4th of July to, to everybody listening. But before we begin, as always, just want to take the first few minutes to recap the performance for the market. Uh, for the month and the year of the major indexes that we track. And these numbers are as of the market close on July 5th. And this data is from Y charts. S&P 500 index down 0.1% for the month and up 15.8% for the year. The Dow Jones Industrial Average down 0.3% for the month, up 3.4% for the year. The NASDAQ Composite Index is flat for the month of July, but up 31.8% for the year. The Russell 2000 small cap index is down 0.8% for the month and up 6.5% for the year. Finally, the Vanguard All World X United States ETF down 0.7% for the month and up 7.8% for the year. Three month E bill sitting at 5.43%, the two year treasury rate at 4.87%, and the 10 year treasury rate at 3.81%. So, uh, three month continues to climb, Matt. I know over the past couple of days, or really, I guess the past two weeks, um, rates have have started to go up again. And I think everybody, you know, initially earlier this year in Q1 and Q2, were expecting that, you know, at some point we were going to get a Fed rate cut. But um, futures are now telling us that we shouldn't expect that before the end of the year, and that might get kicked to next year. Um, so interest rates uh, still on the rise right now. Yeah, it's interesting. And I think that there's a couple of reasons for that. I think one, the market's speculating that some of the data is a little stronger than the market was anticipating. And secondly, people are fearing that inflation is going to be a little stickier and that the Fed's going to have to raise, um, you know, to continue to bring that in. You know, again, I stand by this. And you look at some of these real time inflation indicators, trueflation, like we talked about on the podcast before. It's indicating real-time year-over-year inflation is around 2.5% right now. And the way the Fed's reporting it is sitting at 4 with their antiquated survey method. So, you know, I think that there has to be, you know, some sort of way they figure that out. But the next Fed meeting's at the end of July, and most likely the market's anticipating another hike of a quarter of a point. Yeah, and I thought it was interesting. Uh, Stan Druckenmiller, uh, uh an investor who I highly, highly respect uh, in our industry, um, you know, he gave us a speech. Uh, it was probably about two months ago now, and at that point, it seemed like, you know, the the trade was long bonds and short rates. And you know, he made it very clear that while he thinks that that could happen, it's not 
exactly, you know, a fat pitch that everybody would expect to go long bonds right now and expect to do really well on that trade just because it's so unknown what the Fed policy is going to be for the next year or two years. Because again, just to reiterate for listeners, we've talked about this before on the show, but bonds and interest rates, bond prices and interest rates have a inverse relationship. So when bond prices go up, interest rates go down and vice versa. So, you know, if we are in a falling rate environment, um, that should bode well for, for bond prices. So uh, we're obviously just, just not there just yet. Yeah, my second comment that I think is important for our viewers and listeners to hear, Mark, is interest rates could hang out at the five to say five and a half percent level and stocks have the ability to do and risk assets have the ability to do just fine. You know, I think that we become programmed, especially over the last, you know, roughly decade that only low, low interest rates mean that risk assets do well. And that's not necessarily accurate. Anything you want to add to that? No, we'll just think back to when interest rates were, you know, 10, 12% and, you know, stocks had to perform better than that to make it appetizing for people to buy them. And, you know, they did in in a lot of years. So, um, you know, that's really, in my opinion, the hurdle rate, right? And I think over a long period of time, we've seen that risk assets outperform, um, you know, safer assets such as, such as bonds or, you know, U.S. treasuries, corporate bonds, whatever you might have. And I think that, that's one of these times now. Obviously, now it's more attractive to to buy treasury bonds and corporate bonds right now than it has in the past several decades, but that doesn't mean that, that stocks still can't do well. Exactly. So uh, moving on to big headlines, current events from the week, Matt, the only thing I had was that the Supreme Court struck down President Biden's student loan forgiveness plan. So last Friday, the Supreme Court ruled six to three that President Biden exceeded his authority with a plan to forgive more than $400 billion in federal student loan debt. The plan will have, would have eliminated up to $20,000 of federal student debt for borrowers earning up to $125,000 annually or up to $250,000 for married couples. So, um, you know, the fight just continues on with student debt, Matt. We've we've talked about it here, you know, for the past, you know, three or four years that we've been doing this podcast that, you know, obviously this is this is a huge problem in, in our country and I don't have the right answer to it, but uh, the Supreme Court is saying that the one proposed by the Biden administration, uh, not legal. Yeah, heard that. And you got, you know, the interest starting to accrue again here this fall, payments uh, coming back in October. So um, I think you mentioned it in the last couple of podcasts. You said, hey, I wonder how that could possibly negatively affect um, consumer spending during the holiday period. Yeah, that'll be interesting. So, you know, I guess if we're going to raise rates a couple more times before the end of the year and, you know, people are saying, when are we going to go into this recession? That could uh, be a factor that plays into the timing of it. But that's something we're going to have to wait and see for a couple months down the road. Correct, sir. Um, moving on to tweets, articles, and research from this week. The first thing I had was a snippet from a blog post from Morgan Housel titled, Why You Believe the Things That You Do. And that was on June 21st. And this was really interesting for me, Matt. It, uh, you know, it talks about things kind of outside of investing and relates it back to, to our industry. So I just want to read uh, a little bit from this. Sure. 
So he says, I remember reading an article years ago about a father in Yemen who lost a son to starvation, only to have another child fall dangerously ill. Desperate, he turned to tribal elders who recommended a folk remedy, shove a burning stick through the, chi the sick child's chest to drain the illness. The father agreed. Asked about the horrific procedure, the father said, when you have no money, your son is sick, you'll believe anything. That is such a powerful statement, and some version of it applies to everyone. Here's a universal reality. What you believe to be true is influenced by how much you want it to be true. The more something helps you deal with uncertainty, the lower the bar is for you to believe it's true. Think about the investor whose strategy is so tied to their identity, they can't let it go when it stops working. Or the business that so desperately wants to be good, it overlooks all the ways it's bad. Charlie Munger once said, quote, if you turn on the television, you'll find the mothers of the most obvious criminals that man could ever diagnose, and they all think their sons are innocent. The reality is too painful to bear, so you just distort it until it's bearable. People can be led to believe and defend almost anything because of the because the goal of a belief is often to not discover what's true, it's to justify past actions or protect your reputation or provide hope when it's lacking, or to maximize your income or to signal to others that you belong to the tribe. And I thought this was really good because I think people get so tied to one investing strategy or one stock or one mutual fund or one ETF because it was their call, right? And especially with retail investors, they they pick a stock that goes up 50% in the first two months and they're telling all their friends. And then all of a sudden that stock starts to fall and starts to fall and starts to fall. And next thing you know, instead of being 50% up, they're 50% down because they're like, I was right for so much time and I got the story right. The story's still right, but they don't want to part ways with it because now they're just fighting to get back to, to break even. Yep. And you know, when, when something's down 50%, it needs to climb more than 50% to get back to break even. So I thought it was really good. Um, just a reminder to not let us get emotionally tied to our portfolios or to certain stocks or, or certain funds, because at the end of the day, I think it, it really does more harm than good. And you have to be able to adapt uh, in our industry. That's right. I mean, we're going to have times where different, say, styles of investing are going to be in or out of favor. And I can can give you know a lot more examples about that. And so can you, Mark. We just got to remember at the end of the day, you know, <clears throat> if you stay married to that style and you're out of favor, you could go through some hard times. And last year, a good example you know, value investing, deep value was very much in favor. And so a lot of people got on the bandwagon at the end of the year. And you want to guess what styles out of favor here in 2023? Value. Deep value. So that's just, you know, again, nice cautionary tale. And I, I like that you brought this up today. Yeah. Yeah, it's important. It's just important to know when you need to cut your risk. And even if you're in love with the company, you know, eventually, you know, if you hold it for long enough and it's a, a really strong performer that could, you know, climb up to 50% of your net worth. And you're like, Hey, this stock or this fund got me to where I am today for the past 25 years. That doesn't necessarily mean it's going to get you to where you want to be 10 or 20 years from now. So, yeah. 
Uh, second thing I had was another blog post from Josh Brown on June 17th titled Today's Market Pivots from a Funeral to a Party as Fast as a VFW Hall. <laughs> so I just want to view, uh, read a few points from, uh, from Josh's piece here as well. He says, even if I gave you tomorrow's headlines today, you would still not be able to guess what the impact of all that news would have on prices, sentiment, valuations, or the responses of fiscal and monetary policymakers. Case in point, if I told you in January 2020 that we'd see 22 million layoffs in March and April, shuttered schools and businesses, all flights grounded, and the cancellation of every in-person event from sports to vacations to conferences to concerts to church services across the country, you probably would not have predicted a 20% return for the S&P 500 that year and a 30% return the next year. Look it up. That's what happened. Markets can pivot from euphoria to terror back to euphoria again before you can change your clothes. Things that make no sense happen all the time. Stock market trends aren't supposed to make sense if you're judging them based on whatever is going on today. Give me enough time and I can look back to credibly explain nearly everything that's ever happened. That's why it's so easy looking back in hindsight, right, Matt? It's interesting you brought this up because one of my pieces today is also about hindsight. Okay. All right. He finishes, he finishes off with the thing that... The thing that everyone's talking about is not always the thing that ends up mattering. Did mm. you have AI chatbots on your bingo card for why the NASDAQ would rip 35% in five months? Bet you didn't. Bet you were more worried about inflation more than anything else last November 30th, the day that chat GPT was born. Um, so I just thought that this was a good piece because I think we're all searching constantly for that crystal ball that's going to tell us, you know, what the market's going to do. But um, in my opinion, your investing results, actually, your performance may be worse if you knew the news ahead of time and, and positioned yourself accordingly, because it's really surprising what the market does, depending on the news that it gets. And it's not always as straightforward as it seems. Well said. And the, perf well the, the perfect example of that is is COVID. You know, if, yeah. if I knew we were going to go into a you know full on lock global lockdown and, and a pandemic, I I would have got a, a hell of a lot more conservative, right? And yeah, um, and look what would have would have been that would have been the wrong move. So yeah. Um. Last but not least, uh, again, this kind of ties back to the first thing I talked about about you know defending a certain strategy or holding on to a certain stock for too long. Um, this was a tweet from Steph Schleppick on June 27th, and it is a picture of a stock, Matt, and that mm. stock is Canopy Growth. Oh, so he boy. says, Canopy Growth, once the staple of pot stocks and valued at $50 billion, then drawing investment from even Constellation brands, now near worth zero. And Jenna will throw this up. Uh, on the the YouTube page for us here and in the show notes, but it can just goes to show you, you know, how quickly you know these pot stocks rose, but then how quickly they also fell too. And I literally remember this, Matt. I remember we, me and you were on a business trip, trip in Florida, and you know, all over CNBC, it was you know, uh, Canopy Growth, Green Growth Company, and all these other these pot mm -hmm. stocks. Um, mm -hmm. Tilray, remember Tilray? Tilray. Oh was yeah, everyone. Three four hundred dollars. Everybody a share. was talking about Tilray. At the yeah. Time. 
And uh, I just remember being in the hotel and we were looking at each other and we were like, man, this is this is not going to end well. And and this is one of those examples where people were telling their friends and their aunts and uncles and cousins and siblings how much money they're making off of pot stocks. Um, I don't think they're necessarily probably sharing how much money they've lost on the way down. So. No, I mean, well, well put. And again, we're going to continue to go through these hot themes in the market where you have very speculative investments where people are buying them on the premise of where they're going to be four, five, six years from now, not a couple quarters. And the likelihood of getting disappointed is, is high, in my opinion. And just be careful about the hot areas of the market. And right now, the hot area of the market is anything related to AI. And I think there's, you know, personally, I think there's some attractive areas of that market and there's ones that I'm not. And so um, just tread, tread carefully. Yeah. And I was listening actually to a podcast yesterday, Matt, it's called Fill the Gap and it's uh, run by uh, the CMT uh, designation. And they had a guy on by the name of uh, Craig Johnson and they asked him, they were like, is AI a bubble right now? And he argued no, because there haven't been virtually any like AI IPOs in the past several months. Obviously, excellent there's, there's point though. That's an excellent point. That's a good point because I mean, there's obviously a lot of companies getting involved in it, but not like what we saw with um, crypto back in the day, and obviously with pot stocks back in the day. There were IPOs like crazy for those industries, and we haven't seen that yet for AI, which is uh, pretty interesting. So, uh, for what it's worth, take it with a grain of salt. Yeah, good way of saying it. All right, so my my first piece is I have some second half of the year stats for the S&P 500 index when the market was up at least 10% for the first half of the year. So this uh, comes from a post by Seth Golden, and this is on June 26, Mark. And what he was specifically referencing is Fundstrat's Tom Lee had a post. It says, it would be perfectly in keeping with the history for the S&P to achieve new all-time highs in the back half of 2023, given the strength in the first half of the year. So next, Jenna will put up this, um, this, this graphic. It's going to show, going back, um, the first data set is 1954, and you're going to see about roughly um, 10 uh, data sets where the market was up 10% um, in the first um, six months of the year. And the average return in the second half in those data sets is 11.8%. Right. And, and so S&P 500 up 10% in the first half of this year and the prior year was negative. Correct. I should have said yeah. that. I apologize. And the prior year was negative. And the average return the second half of the year, 11.8, the win ratio, 89%. The only year where the second half was not positive was 1975, where it was down 5.3%. Now, why am I highlighting this? There's a lot of people where we're in what I said this in last week's podcast, we're in the disbelief phase of where this market's at, in my personal opinion. I'm not saying it's going to go straight up. I'm not even telling you that it's going to be up the second half of this year. What I'm trying to indicate is the majority of the investment world is telling you is the feeling of the narrative, Mark, is can't go higher. It's not going to go higher. And when I see so many people having that same narrative, 
I usually know how this this works out. My opinion. So this is a stat that kind of backs up my feelings. Any comment you'd like to make? Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, I've seen both of these stats separately. So S&P 500 up 10% for the first half of the year. What's the second half return of the year like in the full year? And I've seen, hey, when the prior year is negative, what's the average return the following year? I haven't seen them combined, which is really nice to see. And again, small sample size, but uh, the returns are pretty uh, mind boggling. You know, you had full year returns of other times. This has happened of 45%, 38%, 31%, 29%. So um, we're not talking small, small numbers here. That's crazy. The S&P 500 in 1975 was up almost 40% in the first half of the year, which is, which is kind of crazy. Do you know what happened? Did anything happen in 75? Can you think of that off the top of your head? Um, coming off, you had uh, oil embargo issues a couple of years previously. So you had a sluggish economy. I think it was just kind of bouncing back from that. Yeah. Huh. The other thing I'll throw out there, um, you know, when I, when I think of this is going back to last November, there was no way in people's minds that this market was going to be approaching the potential of a high water mark a year later. Okay. And this is yet another kind reminder that when things seem very, very bleak in the market, this will happen again in the future. We know it will, Mark, right? We got to remember times like these, and we're going to reference them in the future because underlying earnings, and we've been talking about this a lot in the podcast, underlying corporate earnings for the S&P 500 are very resilient right now. And that is a big reason why, in my opinion, the market is doing what it's doing right now. So I would encourage our listeners and viewers that um, to continue to watch quarterly earnings of these stocks because that's going to be a big determinant of, in my opinion, where the market's going. Yeah, well said. All right, my next piece. This is a blog post from our friend Ben Carlson, Mark. It was from July 2nd. Um, my third piece is very, very quick. So this one's going to take me about three or four minutes, so just bear with me. But it's going to tell a very good story. So the title of the blog post is Contrarians Are Usually Wrong, okay? So again, Ben penned this on July 2nd. Here we go. Ben says, I have a hot take that's been preheating in the oven for a while. That goes like this. The big short by Michael Lewis has lost investors more money than the last three bear markets combined. Allow me to explain. We've all read or watched the movie, and the band of misfits who made a contrarian bet against the housing market and made a fortune. Unfortunately, I think a lot of people took the wrong lessons from Lewis's book. Few people saw the great financial crisis coming. The book made it seem so obvious in hindsight that a bunch of investors decided they could do the same thing if they were only given another chance. I, too, could be the next John Paulson or Steve Eisman. Everyone wanted to find the next big short and become an unexpected financial hero. The problem with finding once-in-a-lifetime trades is they only come around like once-in-a-lifetime. John Paulson made billions by shorting the subprime mortgage market. You know what happened to Paulson after making the greatest trade ever? Not much, really. People were throwing money at the guy. There was a gold-denominated hedge fund right as gold was peaking, and eventually he decided to run all the billions he made himself and close up shop. 
lightning did not strike twice. The endowment fund I used to work for invested in a hedge fund that made a tiny bet with Paulson subprime short, but it was such a small piece of their portfolio that it didn't make them help them in the overall returns very much during the crash. But they got a taste of what it was like to hit a jackpot and a kind of bet. So they created a new fund that was tasked with finding the biggest and best trades. They shorted the Japanese government bonds and a bunch of other stuff that didn't pan out. That fund also closed. As much as people would like to watch the world burn, we don't get a global financial crisis every year. The lesson people should take away from the 2008 debacle is that the markets can be a humbling place. Instead, many people assume the takeaway is being contrarian is the best way to make money at all times. Being contrarian felt a more comfortable stance to take. Don't get me wrong. Going against the grain at an opportune moment can be a wonderful strategy. The best investment opportunities always occur when there is blood in the streets. And Mark, how many times have we talked about that? Yeah, the problem, a lot, right? The problem is you can't be a contrarian at all times. Most of the time, the trend is right and fighting it is a losing strategy. As Jeff Bezos once said, contrarians are usually wrong. Warren Buffett's famous for being greedy when others are fearful. Guess what Buffett's biggest holding is now? Apple. Literally the biggest company in the U.S. stock market by market capitalization. There just aren't that many opportunities to swing at fat pitches these days. The great financial crisis broke so many brains that instead of admitting the error of their ways, many of these newfound contrarians dug in their heels. I'm not wrong. I'm just early. I would have been right if it wasn't for the Fed. Listen, the system didn't collapse yet, but it's close to collapsing. People were saying that in March about the banking system. If none of those excuses work, then you start questioning the data. Surely it's not me that's wrong. It's the economic data that's wrong. Listen, I don't hold Michael Lewis personally responsible for all the perma-contrarians that were born out of the 08 crisis. It's not his fault he crafted such a wonderful story about the people who bet against the housing industry and won. I do think a lot of investors missed out on one of the biggest bull markets in history and will constantly be in search of the next big short to their own detriment. The life of a perma bear looks something like this. Wrong, 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 right. I told you so. Wrong again, wrong again, wrong again, still wrong. You get the picture. I get the appeal of trying to bet against the system to find fame, glory, profits, and Steve Carell and Ryan Gosling playing you in a movie verging. Fingers crossed, maybe one day you'll win the lottery. But is that really a strategy that gives you the highest probability of success? Call me crazy, but I prefer betting on the big long over trying to find the next big short. Yeah, it's pretty good. I think, um, you know, something we touch on a decent amount here is that people are um, really into instant gratification these days and they don't want to play the long game. And I, if they think that there's always a opportunity out there that's a a get rich quick strategy that they can just get in and get out. And then they made their themselves, you know, 10, $20 million and then they don't have to do anything for the rest of their lives. And the reality of it is it's a lot harder than that, than it seems. I think people's perception is, you know, well, it was pretty obvious you should have made the X, Y, Z trade. And it's like, yeah, it was obvious in hindsight, but during the time, no one knew that that was going to happen. Right. And you know, I think it's kind of popular or kind of sexy to go against the grain um, and be a contrarian. But a lot of 
the times it doesn't work. And this is a perfect article that has given many examples of that. And, you know, some people get lucky. Some people do their research and they deserve to be right on these big short term short trades like during the big finance great financial crisis excuse me um but it in my opinion it's not for the majority of investors especially retail investors these guys that did this you know they dedicated their lives to doing this and put a lot of time and effort into it and i think that's where perception is diverting from reality is that these guys just put on this trade without you know, doing a lot of research behind it and they made a whole bunch of money. Whereas in theory, they, you know, were working their you know what's off, put everything they had into making this thesis and creating this bet. Um, where I think a lot of people that are outsiders looking in are saying, oh, they got lucky and they just, you know, they, they put this trade on and it made them, you know, millions and billions of dollars. And it's not necessarily the case. So, no, uh, yeah. Well, well said. And, Again, yeah, this is another reason why I recommend people follow their investment plan. You know, try to turn off the noise that you see in the markets from uh, week to week and month to month, uh, because over time, you know, the markets uh, tend to be a good uh, place for wealth creation. Yeah. So my last piece is a great post uh, by Brian Fernaldi on June 30th. Jenna will put up this chart for our YouTube viewers. This will be in our traditional uh, podcast notes for our traditional podcast listeners. He has a list of 14 priorities for financial wellness. Okay, and this is what he calls his order of operations. Um, number one, get organized. Two, optimize insurance. Three, align spending with your values. Four. Starter emergency fund. Five, eliminate high interest debt. Six, make sure you're maximizing that employer match. Seven, full emergency fund. Number eight, health savings account. Number nine, personal IRAs, Roth or traditional. Number 10, educational accounts. Number 11, eliminate non-mortgage debt. Number 12, taxable brokerage account. Number 13, mortgage paydown fund. And number 14, whatever you want. I thought it was great. Um, he put in his uh, tweet, I love stocks, but your personal finances are 10x more important than stock picking. Follow this framework to make your financial life bulletproof. Now, that's what he said. I'm not saying insinuating this will make you bulletproof. I think it's a great priority order list, though, a good starting point. Mark, anything you want to add? Yeah, I love it. Um, you know, I think this kind of can relate to what we were just kind of talking about, about playing the long game. And I think, you know, there's a urge for a lot of people right after they get out of college to when they're actually making money, making more money that they've ever made in their life before to, you know, kind of enjoy themselves. Right. But um, if you just follow a simple financial wellness plan, as Brian has outlined here uh, for the first you know, five to 10 years of your life, you, you take care of everything that needs to get taken care of, and you learn to live on a lot less. And then from that point on, all your raises are just, you know, icing on the cake, right? So um, yeah, this is, this is really good. I encourage people to, you know, take screenshots of this, save this, do whatever you can to, uh, you know, keep this in the back of your head. And, and I think it's always a good practice to revisit this at least once per year. Uh, I Thank you. Um, we're going to have Taylor on next for our financial planning topic of the week. Mark, before you uh, sign off for this portion of the podcast, um, anything you'd like to share with our listeners and viewers, sir? 
No, I don't think so. Um, you know, it's been obviously a, a really strong first half of the year. We just entered the second half of the year. Um, again, we haven't really had a major correction yet. So I just want to remind people that it's very normal for indices to pull back, you know, 10, 12, 13% in any given year. And typically we have at least one of those and we haven't yet this year. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised. Volatility has been extremely low for, you know, a uh, pretty long time right now, longer than we've uh, seen in quite some time. Um, so I, I wouldn't be surprised to see a little bit of volatility over the next couple of months. Um, it is normal. It's not going to feel normal. It's going to feel like the world is ending again. But um, again, like we just talked about, let's stick to our plan and and get through it because we are of the opinion that the market finishes higher uh, at the end of the year than where we are today. Yeah, I'll add just uh, uh, 20 seconds to it. If you are listening to this podcast, you are watching on YouTube. And my advice is if you have, if you're still on the sidelines from 2022, I would consider some sort of dollar cost average strategy to slowly get back into this market over six months, nine months, 12 months, you know, work with the professional. Um, but I'm just, I'm throwing that out there because there's still people I know out there, Mark, um, that are still all in cash from last year. And I just don't want it to be a situation where they're getting back in in 24 and they're buying back at such high prices. Um, again, anything's possible in the market. A correction second half of the year at some point of at least 10%. At some point, I agree with Mark, is, is likely. But again, play the long game on this. Yeah, for sure. My but, words of wisdom. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. All right, Mark. Well, thank you for um, for that portion. I'm going to uh, transition over to Taylor for the financial planning topic of the week. And we'll see you next week, my friend. Yeah. Thank you. All right. So up on the podcast is Taylor Ledbetter um, at our firm um, day to day at Jessup Wealth Management. She's a wealth advisor. She also handles all of our clients uh, financial planning um, work and calculations. And so first of all, Taylor, your fan favorite. Welcome back. Good to be back. So what do you have for our viewers and listeners this week, Taylor? Yeah, so I'm going to be referencing an article I read. It was called, Which Retirement Accounts Should You Withdraw From First? So I'm going to go down their list and kind of give my thoughts on their order of operations. I love this topic because a lot of people are always considering, hey, you know, when I retire, what's the optimization from the withdrawal strategy to minimize my tax bill? And I know you mm -hmm. tackle this a ton for our practice and our clients to begin with. So I'm excited that mm -hmm. you picked this topic. Yeah, it'll be good. So the first account they say you should withdraw from is anything in like a savings account or a checking account. Um, and the two main reasons for that is number one, you want to give your tax-free investments more time to grow completely tax-free. So think of like your Roth IRAs or Roth 401ks. Um, another reason they suggested this is from a tax perspective. Um, obviously, money you pull out of a savings account has already been taxed. So essentially, you could have no taxable income if you're just living off of cash. Now, I do agree with that first account withdrawal. Um, but I really don't think you need to be keeping a lot of money in your savings account when you first retire. Um, I know we typically say three to six months of living expenses you should have for an emergency fund. Mm -hmm. um, 
But I just don't really think you need, you know, six months worth of expenses when you retire. Um, I think it'd be better to invest the excess money because you would earn way more. I'm in agreement with you, Taylor, on this topic, because what we tend to see happen is it might start off with six months, but as they take mm -hmm. systematic monthly withdrawals or they get their fixed, um, you know, income sources like a pension or Social Security, you know, a year or two later, they could be up to 12 months and that money is sitting earning hardly anything for years and years and years. And it just digs mm -hmm. away at the at the um, purchasing power of that money. Right. Mm hmm. And, you know, it partially could be a psychological thing, too, for some people, because they know they they might not have a pension or, you know, they don't have that W-2 income anymore. So they it might just provide a sense of security to have something so easily accessible at the bank. And I think that you hit the nail on the head there, Taylor. You know, I think that having that conversation with our clients about the emotional side of their investment allocation, specifically their emergency fund, you and I can talk about all day long what makes sense from a fundamental number standpoint, right? Mm -hmm. But you and I are, are smart enough to know, just as you hit the nail on the head, it tends to be an emotional-based decision, right? Mm -hmm. For sure, 100%. So yeah, I do agree with using the cash accounts first. I just don't agree with having a ton of money in there. Um, if you want to do a Roth conversion, maybe during their, those first couple years of retirement, I know I've talked about Roth conversions before on the podcast, Yep. Um, then a cash account would be great to live off of while you're kind of tackling that. And as a reminder, I know that we've uh, Taylor has done several financial planning uh, topics in the podcast in the past about Roth conversions. Just remember, the reason that she wants people to do that is she wants to try to minimize their uh, taxable income for that year so they could do larger amounts in Roth conversions to keep them in, say, a certain tax bracket. So, mm -hmm. you know, if you are um, you know, seeking some assistance and some Roth conversion calculations, you can feel free to reach out to Taylor on our team and she can assist you with that. All right, so the next account this article recommended pulling from would be your taxable account. So that's gonna be an individual account, joint account, revocable trust. Um, and the reason they recommended this account next is purely from a tax standpoint, because taxable accounts are taxed differently than a retirement account would be. Um, just as a quick reminder, taxable accounts pay capital gains tax. So if you hold investments in that account for more than one year, you actually qualify for a much lower rate um, than your ordinary income bracket would be. Those rates are 0%, 15%, and 20%, depending on your income. Um, so when you withdraw from these taxable accounts, it's technically not considered taxable income either. So you do save a lot of money. You could be pulling from this one account that have no taxable income for the whole year. Okay. Well, well put. I'm glad you pointed that out. And then the next type of accounts they recommend are any pre-tax retirement accounts. So your 401ks, traditional IRAs, 403bs, everything that's deferred until retirement. So I do agree with pulling from these accounts third. Um, 
but something you do have to think about is required minimum distributions or RMDs. Um, and if you have a fairly large account balance, then it might be best to start withdrawing money from these accounts earlier on because your RMD could be very large. Yes, it could. Yes, it could. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times what we might see happen is if someone does have a very large account, then they will do a Roth conversion in those first few years of retirement. Um, they might live off their savings accounts or their taxable accounts to convert as much as they can. In those early years, yep. Exactly. And the last account they recommend saving for last are your Roth accounts. I think that is pretty self-explanatory. You know, the longer you wait to withdraw money from a Roth, the more tax-free income you'll have. You could even pair that with withdrawing money when you have the RMD to kind of help your tax liability a little bit. Yep. Um, so for the most part, I did agree with their order of operations. Yeah, I like how you kind of clarified in your own opinion, hey, these are the kind of the, the nuances of this recommendation that I disagree with. And, you know, everyone's going to have their professional opinion. And I, I agree with the things that you pointed out in this. Yeah, no, I thought it was a good article. And you can look at this from so many different ways. I think this is just you know, the general rule of thumb that everyone's situation is completely individualistic. Absolutely. And I'd recommend that if you're an individual that is uh, in early in retirement or nearing retirement and you need assistance with maximizing a withdrawal strategy in retirement, feel free to reach out to Taylor. She specializes in this and she can definitely assist you with this. All right. Anything else, Taylor, before you and I sign off together? Um, no, I think that was pretty much it. All right. So we are approaching earnings season. Listeners and viewers know that um, you're going to have a lot of earnings hit up in the next couple of weeks here. If you start to see some higher volatility in individual stocks, it might be because they are reporting earnings to their shareholders. They do so uh, every quarter. And most of those announcements will be from the middle of July through the first week or two of August. And lastly, I would like to thank um, Jenna, who uh, assists in the production uh, of this podcast. She's our director of marketing at our firm. She is on a uh, personal vacation this week, but she took some time away from that to uh, produce the podcast this week. So, uh, Jenna, thank you for your time and sacrifice on your personal vacation so we can consistently deliver this podcast every week to our viewers and listeners. Thank you so much, Jenna. So thank you for listening to episode 208 of the Independent Advisors podcast. Me, Taylor, Mark, Jenna, we hope all of you had a wonderful rest of your week. We hope you had a good fourth and we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. 
have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show, message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved.